to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. He is not a God who delights to hide himself from his creatures, but who wants to show himself to them. And he has done so in all sorts of ways. The very creation itself is an evidence that God is a God who wants to be known. But what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is telling us at the beginning is that the supreme way in which God manifests himself to men is by speaking. Not by creation, but by speaking. Supremely and savingly, God reveals himself by speaking. Because he is a speaking God. Now, it's a very important thing for us to grasp this, that there is a manifestation of God that you see in nature. And as we look at the sky and the mountains and hills, we are to recognize that God displays his glory in these ways. And we ought to be able to see something of God's glory and majesty in the heavens that declare the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. But that revelation of God is never a saving revelation. That is, it is not a revelation that can bring you to a knowledge of God as a savior and redeemer of his people. The only place where we discover that saving revelation is when God speaks. And what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is telling us is that God speaks first through the prophets and then through his Son, God, who at sundry times and in diverse ways has spoken unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. Now these two stages of revelation, the two ways in which God reveals himself as a speaking God, correspond to the Old and New Testaments. God speaks through the prophets in the Old Testament, and the word really is not confined to those who are the prophets as we normally think of them, but all who bore God's message in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he speaks in Christ. So God's revelation of himself, as we were mentioning briefly last week, is a progressive revelation reaching its climax in Christ. But it's important for us to emphasize that it is not progressive in the sense of moving from the untrue to the true. When we move from God's revelation of himself through the prophets to the revelation of himself he gave in Christ, we are not moving from something that is anywhere untrue to that which is true. Nor are we moving from the less true to the more true. We are not even moving from a less worthy concept of God to a more worthy concept of God. Do you know the kind of thing people often say? The God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath and anger and judgment. 
And then we come into the New Testament and find a God of grace and love and mercy. But beloved, it is the same God who has revealed himself and spoken in the Old Testament through the prophets as the God who spoke and revealed himself in Christ. And this progress is therefore a progress from promise to fulfillment. As we were seeing last week, from shadow to reality, from the partial to the complete, but never from the less true to the more true. And to both the Old and New Testaments, therefore, there belongs the same authority. Now that's a very important thing to grasp, and I think it's one of the great weaknesses of evangelical life in our generation. There belongs precisely the same authority to the Old Testament because it is the same God who has spoken in both cases as to the New Testament. And between the Old and the New Testament, there is an absolute consistency. So there are the two words that clarify our thinking about the relationship between the two Testaments. Authority and consistency. And there is an inner consistency right through the whole of God's revelation. Because you see, if it were otherwise, we would be positing an inconsistency in God. If it's God who reveals himself, and he reveals himself through the prophets, first of all, to our fathers, and through Christ now in these last days to us, then the consistency of the scripture is really related to the consistency of God's character. And it's a tremendously important thing for us to grasp this. And that safeguards us against all sorts of misunderstanding. If you find that you are ever tempted to see inconsistency as between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can safely conclude that it is because of your own finite understanding or lack of understanding and not because there is an inconsistency between the two. Now, the contrast between the two is clearly drawn by the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews between the peoples to whom God spoke, first to our fathers, and then to us, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us. Incidentally, it's not unimportant to notice who our fathers are, for that is clearly a reference to the Jewish nation. When we read that God spoke to our fathers, he is specifically telling us that God spoke to the Jews. And that's the point that Paul has in Romans chapter 3 verse 1, do you remember, when he says, What advantage then has the Jew much every way, chiefly because to them were given the oracles of God? Now that's a very important thing, you see. God did not speak in a general sense, in a universal and vague sense. He spoke to a people. He spoke to our fathers, and it is the biblical position that God's revelation was given to a people. And that, in Paul's judgment, is the great advantage of being a Jew, that to them were committed and given the oracles of God. 
Now, of course, they were not given it in order to hold on to it and keep it to themselves. They were given it in order that they might be a light to the nations. God designed the Jews originally to be the world's evangelists, you see. But the glory of the Jewish nation is that God committed to them the oracles of God. He gave this revelation to our fathers, says the Apostle. Now that's the importance, you see, of understanding so much of the Old Testament that comes out here in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Sometimes people reading the Epistle to the Hebrews say, I get bogged down in some of these places about sacrifices and customs and ceremonies and so on. What's the point of us being interested in that? Because to the Jewish people, God committed his oracles. It was through the Jewish nation that God spoke through the prophets. And it's a vital thing for us to understand this element in God's revelation of himself to our fathers. But in the, these last days, he has spoken to us. Now the us are not simply the Hebrew people, but God's covenant chosen people who are the children of Abraham by faith and he has spoken to us in a son. So the first contrast is the peoples to whom God spoke. The second contrast you notice is the times at which God spoke in time past or of old that is in former days. These former days really deal with the period right up to the days of Malachi, to the end of the Old Testament. Former days or times past deal with that era. But now he has spoken, he says, and this is the contrast, in these last days. Now the last days does not mean recently. I came across a translation yesterday, I think it was, which translates that he has recently spoken but that is not what it means at all what the apostle is saying is that God in these former days right up to the end of the era of the prophets that is right up to the time of Malachi he has spoken to our fathers by the prophets but now in the last age that's what he's speaking about he has spoken to us in this last age. And the Greek word, for those of you who are interested in it, is the same word from which we get the word eschatology, the last times, the last period of world history, the last age of time. And in the last age of time, God has spoken his last word to humanity. And he has spoken it in a son. Now that's the great contrast, you see. In the former times, in these former days, right up to the end of the era of the prophets. But now in this last age, God has come to speak to us. And we are living in that last age. We are living in the last days, as it were. Because in New Testament terms, the last days are a reference to the age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. That's the period that spans the last days or this last age. And this last period of time is the time, the final age of history in which God has spoken to us. The means through which he speaks now, first the contrast through the prophets and here through a son. 
Now there is a contrast, of course, of a numerical or quantitative sort. There are many prophets. There is one son. He spoke through the prophets to our fathers. He has spoken in these last days to us through a son. The contrast between the many and the one is a contrast that the apostle uses again in the priesthood of Christ. There were many priests. There is one great high priest who has entered in once for all into the holy place. But the real contrast is a qualitative one, not a quantitative one. They were prophets of God. He is a son of God. Now the original does not say the son, but a son. He has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. He has spoken to us by a son. Now, some have raised with me the issue, does this mean something different from what we were speaking about on Sunday evening, that God's son is the son the unique and only begotten Son of God. And uh, I think they were thinking particularly of what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. The reason the definite article is left out and it's a son is not to suggest, of course, that Christ is one amongst many, but to emphasize the change of category. Prophets on the one hand, but now a different category altogether. A son, not a prophet, but a son. And now the author goes on to set forth the supreme glory and the unique solitary sonship of Jesus Christ by affirming seven things about the son in whom God has spoken finally. And it's these seven things that we will mainly be taken up with this evening. But you will notice his point. In these last days he has spoken unto us by a son. This is the ultimate means by which God has spoken. Not by a servant, not by angels, but by his son. Now, the first of these seven affirmations that he makes about the Son in whom God has finally spoken, as someone said, in whom God has spoken all at once and once for all. The first of these is that he is the one, this Son in whom God has spoken, he is the one to whom ultimately everything in the universe will go. In these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now presently he is going to tell us that this same son is the one from whom everything in the universe has come. But first he tells us he is the one to whom everything in the universe will ultimately go, before whom everything in the universe will one day bow. That is the nature of the Son of God of whom he speaks, because God the Father has appointed him the sole heir of all things. Sonship and heirship belong together, you see. A 
Christ has been appointed by his Father the sole heir of all things in the universe. And that, of course, is one of the great things in Scripture that speaks about his unique sonship. He is the sole heir of all things because he is the only son. Now, you will remember how this appears in various ways in Scripture, and it's very interesting. Have you noticed how it appears, for example, in Jesus' parable of the vineyard? Where Jesus pictures these servants, you know, in the vineyard who have rebelled against their master. And they have had various messengers sent to them. I wonder if the writer of the epistle was thinking of this parable when he wrote. They have had various messengers sent to them. And when Jesus interprets it, it's the prophets who are the messengers. They have been sent and demanded the fruit from the vineyard. And some of them they slew, others they attacked and so on. And then the master, the owner, the proprietor of the vineyard sent his son. And they said, do you remember, here is the son. He is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And all through Jesus' ministry, there is this satanic attempt to take the inheritance from him. You get it in the temptation when the devil comes to him and says, bow down before me, he says. Bow down before me. Now he is seeking to rob our Lord Jesus of his inheritance, do you see? And the amazing thing is that in that parable they kill the son. And the great paradox is that the son enters into his inheritance by the death through which they think they will rob him of it. And Christ, as the Son of God, enters his inheritance and gains it by his death and resurrection. Christ is the one to whom all the riches of the universe are ultimately going to go. We as Christians, of course, are described as sons and heirs of God. Do you remember in Romans chapter 8? But only... Because we are incorporated into Christ. And yet the glorious thing is that joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. One day, you see, this is going to be manifested. Do you remember in in Revelation chapter 5 how you get a view, a vision of this in heaven, in that window that is opened, as it were, into heaven. In Revelation 5, at the end, I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And here is what they are saying of the Son of God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is his inheritance. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and everything therein saying to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It is this that at the end of the age will be brought to the feet of Jesus. 
All the trophies of the universe, the worship and praise and honor of everything that God has made, every knee will bow before him. Oh, do you ever get that when you are listening to the Messiah and to some of these great choruses towards the end of the Messiah, when there is this triumphant note of everything bowing down before the Lord Jesus and crying hallelujah to him. Beloved, if you are a child of God, you are going to be caught up into that one day. Now here in this world, in this veil of tears, you are caught up into what it means to be a child of God under the smile of the Father's love. He has loved them as he has loved me, says Jesus. The same love with which the Father has loved the Son, he loves those who are sons not by nature but by grace. And one day we are going to share in that inheritance. Because being sons of God, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God has appointed him to be the heir of all things. And he has deigned to take us and say to us, I want you to share in all that. What a glorious prospect. That's why Paul says, you see, in 1 Corinthians 3, that since we are Christ's, notice the stages in his thinking, since we are Christ's and Christ is God's, all things are yours. Philip Hughes, whose commentary on Hebrews I was commending to you until somebody pointed out to me last Wednesday evening that it costs over nine pounds but you could spend your nine pounds scarcely better. Philip Hughes says Christ is the door that opens the whole universe to us. This is what the universe is destined for beloved. This is what it is moving towards that day when it will bring its worship and Christ will have his inheritance in the universe that he has created. He is the one to whom everything is ultimately one day going to go. He is secondly the one from whom everything has come. That is, he is the creator. You notice at the end of verse 2, he is appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. Now he is God's only begotten son and sole heir, but he is also the one through whom God created the universe. He is, strictly speaking, the father's agent in creation. As we were reading in John chapter 1 on Sunday evening, through him was everything made that was made. Without him was not anything made that was made. And this is the New Testament's teaching, of course, here in Hebrews, there in John 1, in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 15. Listen to this. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Do you see the two things brought together? They were created through him and they were created for him. Now, the writer of Hebrews confirms this from the Old Testament in verse 10, where in a quotation from Psalm 102, which he ascribes to Christ, he says, it says, Thou, Lord, didst found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will all grow old like a garment, like a mantle. Thou wilt roll them up, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will never end. Now, that psalm is a psalm that has a messianic content. That is, it refers to the Messiah. And the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews refers it to Christ. Now, we never dare forget this about our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason the writer of the epistle is speaking of this sort of thing is to enable them to think rightly of God the Son. Because, you see, his exhortation, as we were saying last week, is not just a kind of cheap exhortation to go on and persevere and hold fast. His exhortation is based upon the supreme glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, when we are tempted to lose heart, when we are tempted to give up, this is the ground on which we are to anchor our souls, that our Savior is the one who has created the ends of the earth. He is the one who has called the heavens into being. That's the one in whom we have put our trust. This is the Savior who is able to save to the uttermost because of the vastness of his might and power. Now you see, it's not therefore just academic doctrine that Christ is the creator of the ends of the earth and very God of very God. This is the kind of thing in which your soul salvation hangs often. This is the kind of thing in which you either persevere by grace or you don't. What sort of saviour do you have, you see? What sort of Christ is it who dwells within you? Is it this Christ? Have you thought of him in this measure? Oh, the hymn says, Think what spirit dwells within thee. And how much we need to think of this. And catch something of the vastness of the Son of God in all his glory. Now later in this epistle we'll be reading about his tenderness and his grace and mercy. But oh how much we need to grasp the glory and majesty of the creator God in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you think of the detail that our God lavished upon the creation. That's one of the glorious things. You know, I, 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 I went to um, Alan Glenn's school here in Glasgow. And uh, there they, they made a very manly attempt at teaching me science. And uh, they had a very difficult job, I fear. But uh, I will never forget the first time that I looked through a microscope. And 
look down into the detail of what the Creator had done. And as a teenager, I remember being utterly captivated by this, by the way in which the Creator's hand had been at work in tiny, tiny areas of a leaf, for example. Now, it's an amazing thing, beloved, to think that the Creator of the ends of the earth who is my Savior has lavished his care and power upon such details of the universe. Did you know that there are no two snowflakes? If you look at one of these snowflakes through a microscope, for instance, and see the magnificent pattern of it, you know the lace weavers down in the Irvine Valley have designed some of their lace from the magnificence of God's handiwork on snowflakes. Did you know that? Some of these lace tablecloths that you get, that's where the design comes from. And there's not two of them the same. It's astonishing. Think of it the next time you see the snow. You know, that's the benefit of science. Uh, if, if you don't mind my uh, <laughs> posing, posing in this way. Uh, but that is something quite glorious, you know, to see God's handiwork. Now, what does that mean to me? It means that in the heart of my heavenly Father, there is nothing trivial in the life of his child. There is no area of my life that he is not ready to lavish his creator's and redeemer's care upon. Do you know how sometimes we think that we can't trouble people because things are perhaps trivial? There is nothing trivial in your life to such a God and such a Savior as this. He has the very hairs of our head all numbered. There is not a sparrow which falls to the ground without your father. He is the one from whom everything comes to whom everything is going to go. He is the radiance of God's glory. That's the third great affirmation. In verse 3, the RSB says he reflects the glory of God. Uh, I think the authorized version, am I right, says he is the effulgence of the glory of God. Who's got an authorized version? Is that what it says? Uh, verse, verse 3, the beginning of verse 3. He is the brightness of the glory of God. Now that's better than he reflects the glory of God. The New International Version translates it, he is the radiance of God's glory. The real point of what the Apostle is saying is that what we see in Jesus Christ is the very glory of God radiating from God in Jesus Christ because what shines out from him is God's very glory veiled in flesh in his incarnation veiled in flesh, as the hymn puts it, but unveiled in heaven. He is the radiance of God's glory. Now that glory of God, which is God's nature 
and God's essence. You will know that God's glory is his very nature. It is the outshining of all that God is. And the radiance of God's glory shines out in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes that happened in a very special way. It seems almost as if the veil was lifted here and there. Do you remember on the Transfiguration Mount, for example, which is the obvious case, where the disciples suddenly discovered that Jesus was shining with a glory that was blinding them. Something that they could not describe. They search for comparisons, but they're no good. There, somehow or other, through his flesh, there came this glory breaking forth upon them. And you remember how the Apostle Paul discovered it too on the Damascus Road. When he describes it in Acts 26, he says this glory that shone, this bright light that shone, was brighter than the sun. It wasn't the midday sun. He says, it was brighter than the sun. And this is the radiance of God's glory, the outshining of his very essence. And you see this in Jesus Christ. The fourth thing is that he is the exact image of God's substance or nature. The RSV says in verse 3, halfway through the verse, he bears the very stamp of God's nature. Now, the picture comes, of course, from the image on a coin and the die from which it's cast. And the principal idea in that phrase in verse 3, he reflects or he radiates the glory of God. He bears the very stamp of God's nature. The principal idea intended is that of an exact correspondence because there is an exact correspondence and that's the point of the language between the coin and the die from which the coin is cut is cast and it means that what God essentially is is what is manifested in Jesus Christ so that to see him is to see the father now that's what Jesus says to Philip, do you remember, in John 14, when Philip says to him, now the crowning thing would be, if you show us the Father, show us the Father and it will satisfy us. And Jesus says, Philip, have you been so long time with me and that you've been blind to this? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, there is nothing that can be a more complete claim to deity than this. He who looks upon me, says Jesus, is looking upon God. To see me is to see the Father. He is the exact image of God's substance. So when we are dealing with the question of God's existence and nature, you know, the proper place to begin is not with arguments from nature or design or wherever. The proper place to begin is with the person of Jesus Christ. Because that is where God has revealed himself. When people say, how can we know what God is like? Nobody has seen God. God has manifested himself perfectly in Jesus. 
And he is the exact image of God's substance or nature. And the incarnate Christ is the one of whom we may continually say when we look upon him that we are looking upon the very essence of God. Now I think you know that's what we ought to have in mind. People, people often say how are we to think of God? And God in his grace has given us in Jesus Christ the one who is his perfect image. And if you want to think of God, you should think of Jesus in all the characteristics of his person. And that speaks to us not only, of course, about the deity of Jesus, but about the distinctive personality of Jesus within the Godhead. He bears the very stamp of his nature, but is a distinctive personality within the Godhead. He is the exact image of God's substance and nature. Fifthly, he is the upholder of the universe. Verse 3 also, he bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. Now that's something that Paul also speaks about in the epistle to the Colossians, where he speaks of everything having its existence held together in Christ. He is before all things, Colossians 1.17, and in him all things hold together. Now it's a similar idea that you get here, upholding the universe by his word of power. So not only has everything come from Christ, and is everything ultimately going to go to him as the heir of all things, but he is the one who presently upholds everything that is. It is by his word of power that the universe remains in existence. Have you ever thought of that? Now what the writer of the epistle is using here is not the Greek concept that you get in the idea of Atlas. Do you know that idea in Greek mythology of an Atlas holding the world, as it were, on his shoulders and upholding the universe. How did the world stay in its place? That was one of the questions the Greeks asked. And the answer, well, Atlas held it upon his shoulders and the pillars of the world rested upon Atlas. But this is not the picture. It's not that Greek picture at all, in fact, because that is a static idea of the universe just being held in its place by this godlike figure. But the idea in the Bible is a dynamic idea of the Son of God not just keeping the universe in its place, but bearing it forward to its destiny. And the literal meaning of these words speak about bearing the universe, and it's an active term. Bearing the universe on towards its destiny. And it's the picture of the Lord God omnipotent who has the whole universe in his control, you see. And he is bearing the universe on. And in every area of it, he is directing it. He is the one who is sovereign over it. That's the picture. 
And oh, that's something that we need to grasp. Here again, you see, is something that speaks right into the situation of people who are under great pressure. People who are fearful of heart and are tempted to give up. And the writer of this epistle is opening their eyes to the person of the Savior God has sent to them and set within them. He is the one who is bearing this universe on to the climax of all the ages when it will bow before Christ and he will enter into his inheritance with his people. And everything that is taking place in the world comes under that, you see. Now, you know, Christian people in this generation and Christian people in our generation sometimes behave as though God had lost control of the world or as though he had abdicated his throne. But the writer of this epistle says, you know, the whole universe is like a ball in the hand of this great and eternal Son of God. And he is bearing it. He is not only holding it up so that by him all things consist and hold together and cohere. But he is bearing it on to the day which he has fixed. When at the end of time the Son of God will enter into his glory. That's the picture of the universe. And history, you see, is not really going round in circles. And history is not really going nowhere. I read the other day a leading article that someone gave me from the London Times which spoke of the world apparently going nowhere. Beloved, the world is going somewhere. History is not cyclical. It's linear. And it is moving inexorably day by day to that day that God has appointed when he will wind up the affairs of this bankrupt world and hold his last assize and God is bringing the world on to that day and it is Christ who is in control of it. Now that enables the Christian, you see, to live in generations like this and in generations like ours with a poise and a sense of peace and of confidence that people without God and without Christ and therefore without hope cannot have. He is the upholder of the universe. And at the end of time, he will undo the whole drastic tragedy that sin has brought into the world and create a new heaven and a new earth for his new people, his new humanity, with new bodies to live in. That's what our Savior is taking the world on towards. Just a word about the sixth and seventh things. He has provided purification for our sins, says the apostle, upholding the universe by the word of power. Verse 3, halfway through the verse, when he had made purification for sins, and that's what he has provided by the offering up of himself on the cross, 
He bore our sins in his own body on the tree and has made purification for them. It is this Christ, the Christ who himself is very God of very God, who has come down into a situation where man is utterly helpless and hopeless and in total despair, and God, before whom man is guilty, has come down into the midst of this, and he has made purification for our sins and sat down, and he has sat down to declare that All his work is ended, that he has completed what he came to do. And by this great downward sweep from glory into the world of sin, to bear our sin in his own body on the tree, to offer himself up in death, and then to rise out of death which could not hold him, and ascend to the right hand of the majesty, he has sat down, having completed his work of providing a purification for sins. And then he sat down where he still is, at the right hand of the majesty on high, waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool. And that is the glorious position in which our Savior now sits, you see. Therefore, there is no question about the future for the child of God. The future is not in doubt, for Christ has made purification for our sins. He has ascended to the right hand of the majesty, and he is simply waiting, and we are waiting until that day when every knee shall bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But this is the Savior that we have, who is in the perfect position to be our Savior, because he is the one to whom the whole universe is moving, from whom the whole universe has come. He is the one who perfectly radiates the glory of the Father and perfectly bears the very stamp of his character. He is the one who upholds the universe and bears it on by the word of his power. He is the one who has made purification for our sins and now sits at the right hand of the majesty, the perfect Savior. Now that's why we spend so much time going into the details of these early verses because it's so important for us to grasp the perfections of Jesus Christ, to have our eyes open to see who this Son is whom God has sent. And God before whom man is guilty has come down into the midst of this and he has made purification for our sins and sat down and he has sat down to declare that all his work is ended that he has completed what he came to do and by this great downward sweep 
from glory into the world of sin to bear our sin in his own body on the tree, to offer himself up in death, and then to rise out of death which could not hold him, and ascend to the right hand of the majesty. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God. <music>